Last week, we finished Paul's first letter to Timothy. So today we begin Paul's second letter to Timothy. We are in a series on the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. So we're in 2nd Timothy this morning. And Paul's first letter to Timothy, he deals a lot with standing up against false teachers, creating order in the church, how we should behave. And as we saw last week, um, being content in any and every circumstance. And now in his second letter, Paul would need to put those closing words that he gave to Timothy, he needs to put those now in practice. See, Paul is not writing the second letter from some cushy home office. He's not writing while on the beach of the Mediterranean Sea looking out. Paul writes the second and final letter to Timothy during his second imprisonment in Rome while he's waiting to be executed. This imprisonment, it's not the one recorded in the book of Acts. Um, He probably writes this letter somewhere around A.D. 64-65. Paul knows that death would come soon, and he writes this farewell letter to Timothy, who was at Ephesus. He's urging him to stand firm. He's asking him to come for one final visit. I just wonder if you knew that death was coming soon. Let's say you have three months to live. What do you tell your closest friends? What are those final words that you're sharing with those you love the most? That's exactly what 2 Timothy is for Paul. He knows that death is near, and so out of all the words that he could have chosen, that he could have left with Timothy, these are his final words. This is his final message. So if you were going to summarize these four chapters into four commands, Paul begins by telling Timothy to guard the gospel. That's the charge he makes in chapter 1. That's where we'll spend our time today. Timothy, guard the gospel like your life depends on it. Actually, better yet, guard the gospel like the lives of others depend on it. Chapter 2, Paul says to suffer for the gospel. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Then in chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy to continue in the gospel. Continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And finally, Paul instructs Timothy in chapter 4 to proclaim the gospel. Paul says to Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Guard the gospel, Timothy. Suffer for the gospel. Continue in the gospel and proclaim the gospel. These are the final words of a man who will live out his last days in a prison about to be executed. He doesn't tell Timothy to travel more, go see the world while you have a chance. He doesn't tell Timothy to settle down, to get married, focus all your efforts and energy on your kids. Paul's last words are centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul urges Timothy to stand firm and ask him to come for one final visit before Paul is executed. Second Timothy, it's a very personal, intimate letter. It's the final words of a spiritual father to a spiritual son. So let's read chapter 1 of Paul's second and final letter to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1 begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. So I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now he has manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what, he has, what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware of all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for men and women who have, uh, who have not been ashamed of the gospel, who have spoken those words to us so that we may know what is the good news, that we may know the gospel. So Lord, I pray that today that we would be um, like these men and women in this passage, those who have searched out others to to encourage, to share the good news of the gospel with. May that be how we are defined as well, Lord. Lord, may we not abandon and desert 
flee. But may we run to you, even if that means suffering. Lord, help us to stand firm, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think the juxtaposition between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is, is quite fascinating. Paul ends his first letter with statements like, this is what we saw last week, um, chapter 6, verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And then Paul begins the second letter by telling Timothy that everyone has abandoned him that he was being left in prison to die. So all the language about being content with just food and water, being satisfied in Christ alone. I wonder, you know, as Paul's writing that, he's concluding that first letter, you know, he had no idea what was going to be in his future, but now he's writing all those things that now he needs to hear himself, right? I mean, so much can change in such a short time, can it? I mean, not much time has elapsed between his first letter and now this letter. We don't exactly know how much time. Maybe six months, some would argue. Maybe a few years. But you just see from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy how life is just so fragile. One minute, Paul was making plans to visit his friends in Ephesus, 1 Timothy. And then in the next minute, he's in a prison waiting for his execution, 2 Timothy. I think this serves as a reminder to live each day as it is your last. To make time, to take time to reconcile broken relationships, to hug and kiss your loved ones, to say, I love you, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. This letter begins in a very similar manner to all of Paul's letters. In verse 1, we see a typical Pauline introduction and greeting. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a typical standard Pauline introduction. However, one of the observations that most commentaries will make about this introduction is it does seem a little interesting that his second letter... Paul gives more detailed about who he is, his introduction, than he does in his first letter. You would think that the natural progression would be longer to shorter. It's like an email. The first email you send is very formal, right? Dear Mr. Jones, I hope this message finds you doing well. I'm writing regards, and you, know, you, you give all this detail. You give a you know, closing sincerely. Then you probably change your font to some kind of signature font, you type your name, give your title. But then the second email is not as formal as the first one. You may drop the Mr. Jones. You may just say, thank you for your quick reply. And then by the time you get to the final email, you just you type out the word OK by just using the letter K. And then like you're using some 2005 Nokia you know, phone with nine buttons. So no one really knows why Paul uses more details rather than less for this introduction. But either way, it's a pretty straightforward greeting from Paul. The next, Paul continues with his normal pattern that you see in his letters by offering a thanksgiving. He writes in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve. 
as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Paul models something beautiful for us here. And I want you to miss this. You, you have to put yourself in Paul's situation here to really understand this and to see the beauty of it. Remember, he's writing from a first century Roman prison. And he's giving thanks to God whom I serve. He is thanking God even though that he is stuck in prison. I mean, how many of us get stuck at a traffic light and we're already going, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken us? Right? And here Paul was writing from prison. And he's saying, God, thank you so much. He doesn't get angry at God. He doesn't blame God for his situation. And yet I just wonder how many of us, like, we get so angry at God when things don't go our way. And yet here Paul's in prison, and he knows he's experienced. God's pulled him out of prison before in miraculous ways. He could do it again. Why isn't he? It's not God's will this time. But it doesn't change Paul's attitude. He's still thankful to God. He doesn't just pout that he can't serve God anymore because he's stuck in prison. He doesn't say, I'm, you know, I guess my life is over now. He doesn't throw a pity party for himself. Instead, he writes an encouraging letter to a dear friend, to a beloved son. And then he serves Timothy in a way that no prison cell could ever stop him. I don't know if you caught that or not. So maybe some of you have ever had a situation where you feel like, man, I just really can't serve God right now. I can't be a minister of the gospel. Paul's in prison, and it doesn't stop him. How does Paul serve Timothy even while he's bound with chains? Well, one, he writes an encouraging letter, but even more so detailed, we see here, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. See, even in the harsh conditions of a Roman prison cell, those conditions could not stop Paul from being a minister of the gospel. Paul faithfully prayed for Timothy and probably for countless others. I mean, what else is he going to do while in prison? Being in prison would probably improve your prayer life, right? What, I mean, what else are you going to do? Some of you say, man, I would just, I, I wish I had more time. I could, I, I'd be better at praying. Be careful what you ask for. You may end up in prison where you have a lot of time to pray. I wonder when we stand before the Lord one day, and I don't know how it all works out. I don't know if we have to give an account for every minute we have here on earth. But if he just maybe ask you, you know, why didn't you pray more? Why didn't you read the Bible more? I wonder how many of us would say, well, I just didn't have enough time. And I wonder if he will show you how much time you prayed and read your Bible and how much time you spent on social media or video games, TV, streaming, all these shows. I think we're going to just kind of put our head down and realize we had plenty of time to pray and be in God's word. James 5 says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
See, the effectiveness of Paul's prayers had nothing to do with his location. In fact, his location may have allowed him to have more focused time in prayer. Then Paul says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. This is where you see like the tone. It gets really personal. This is a family that Paul knew really well. We don't know the details of his relationship with these ladies, but he obviously has done ministry with them. There's three generations mentioned here, Grandma Lois, Mother Eunice, and now Timothy. He, he knew this family. He saw their faith. He partnered in the gospel with them. Paul was able to see this sincere faith of all of these special ladies, and now he's able to see that same sincere faith in Timothy. At some point, Timothy made the faith of his grandma, the faith of his mom, his own sincere faith, and every child has to do that. No parent ultimately knows if their children truly follow Jesus until they move out of their house and live on their own. It's one of the hard things as a parent is you watch them. And I, I see this all the time with college students, uh, college students who grew up going to youth group every Sunday and Wednesday and church camps every summer. But then they come to Marshall, and they begin to show what they truly worship. Seems like Timothy's mom and grandmother played a huge role in Timothy's spiritual life. But notice how we don't hear anything about his father or grandfather. In Acts 16, we're told that his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. But that's all we know about his dad. Seems like Timothy's spiritual life was more impacted by his mom and grandma more so than his father or grandfather. And how many thousands of other Christians could say the exact same thing about some godly mama, some godly grandma. Many of you here today have written in your faith stories about how your mom, it was a mom or a grandma who played a significant role in developing your spiritual life. And sadly, I'm one week early from this being a really good Mother's Day passage. If, if only 1 Timothy had seven chapters. But it does not. So instead, next week's passage is all about suffering and enduring, which might be how some of you moms might describe motherhood. I don't know. And yes, parenting can be challenging at times. It may honestly feel like enduring is actually a good description of what you do most days. But no, all of you moms wouldn't trade it for all the world. Parenting is challenging. But I'm sure when you see your faith passed down to the next generation, then all those hard days are totally worth it. And I'm, I'm not there yet. My, my oldest is 15, going to be 16 this summer, which means... Driving is ahead, and then I've got a one-year-old. And so all ages between there. And so we're, we're on this journey, and I have no idea. I, I, I see moments where I think we're passing our faith off to them, but until they leave our house and be on their own, we, we will truly not know what kind of faith they have. It's hard to swallow that, but it's true. Some of you, are already, you're already there. You look at your kids, and you're like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that they love you. Some of you, you, you see the other side. You're like, Lord, please save my children. It's hard. Parenting is hard. 
Parents, are you taking and making time to teach your kids the scriptures like Lois and Eunice did? Do you talk to them about the things of the Lord? Do you teach them how to pray, how to read their Bibles? And as I'm learning, I think this gets a little more challenging as our kids have gotten older. When they're younger, we would read books at bedtime, read a story from the Bible, do some type of devotion. We even, you know, at times do catechisms together. But I don't read bed stories with our, uh, bedtime stories with our four older kids. Like, I don't pull Xavier in at night and, okay, Xavier, let's tuck you in the bed and read a story, Isaiah. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, they go to bed on their own and. Um, I, you know, have those sweet moments with Judah still and with Thea and Isha, but they grew up so fast. What I'm learning is that with the older four, we have to be so intentional. Um, so Liv and I, we, we have to, you know, think different ways. Um, for those of you who know my wife, she likes mornings about as much as I like cold weather. But on two different occasions this week, she got up early and took two different daughters to Starbucks and read the Bible together, talk about things of the Lord. Uh, she, you know, she's saying, like, that's, that's an important time. And I know some of you, you guard that time with your kids. That's, that's huge. What are you doing to pass your faith off along to your children? We only have a short time where our kids are underneath our roof. This is where all the moms begin to tear up and they'll hold their babies right now a little tighter. This is where all the dads say, amen, praise the Lord. Get them out. They grew up so fast. And I pray that we can say the same thing about our kids as Paul said about Timothy, that I see your mother's sincere faith in your life as well. But even though Paul could see his sincere faith in Timothy, that did not mean Timothy could just coast through life off his parents' faith. Paul writes in verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, this is not Paul imparting salvation. You know, I laid my hands onto you, now you're saved. That's not what he's saying. So what is this gift of God? It's not salvation. We know that. But we don't know for certain what it is exactly. It seems like it could be connected to the phrase, this through the laying on of my hands might refer back to chapter 4, where Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this could, might, could be like this commissioning, this laying on of hands. So Timothy is told to fan into flame the gift of God. And in verse 7, Paul gives him the reason why. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul doesn't really tell us the object of Timothy's fear. But from context, we, we can speculate. It's possible maybe Timothy maybe developed some fear in sharing the gospel. Makes sense. And from my experience, the number one reason why genuine believers don't evangelize is because of some type of fear, either fear of not knowing how to answer someone's objections to Christianity, maybe a fear of being shamed or fear of being labeled a certain way if you share the gospel, or maybe 
maybe a fear of just not knowing how to effectively share the gospel. I'm just not sure what the right words to say. I don't even know how to take the conversation to the gospel. So you just don't want to mess it up. So maybe you're just afraid of that. Most of you would probably fall into one of those categories. But for Timothy, whatever the reason was, we know that this fear did not have to be paralyzing to him. Fear is something that everyone has to deal with. Even Paul, when Paul planned the church at Corinth, the Lord appears to him in a vision and he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, Paul, uh, Christ doesn't always say that to, Timothy, or to Paul because we know that oftentimes when he did share the gospel, people did attack him. But in this case, Christ said, don't worry, this one occasion, you won't be harmed. No one's going to attack you. It's often been said that the number one command in the Bible is do not fear because we are often a fearful people. Every person has to overcome some type of fear. I'm not talking about overcoming fear of spiders or snakes or being tipped over in a porta potty. There is something so much deeper at stake here that the fear Paul is talking about. Look down at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Picture Timothy. He's in this rough city of Ephesus where there are competing religious systems, different worldviews. Ephesus was, full, was a city full of idols. According to the book of Acts, a riot took place following Paul's ministry in the city. It was dangerous. It was rough. There are plenty of reasons for Timothy to be afraid. Timothy's mentor, Paul, was in prison for sharing the gospel. I mean, that would be a reason to be afraid. If that happened to Paul, it's going to happen to me. Paul's about to be executed for sharing the gospel. Most scholars believe he is beheaded by Rome. Paul was beheaded and not crucified because as a Roman citizen, Rome did not crucify their own people. It's a great privilege, right? Just to be beheaded. Thank you so much. Glad to be a citizen of Rome today. There are plenty of reasons for Timothy to be afraid, but there are plenty of more reasons for Timothy not to be afraid. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul knew that Rome could kill his body, but this is not going to kill Paul. It's just his body. This is just a shell we live in. Take it. I'm getting a new one. That's what Paul would say. In Romans 8.31, Paul writes, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares about the people in Ephesus? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you drop down a few verses in chapter 8, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I mean, if these verses are true, then Timothy and every single one of you, we have nothing to fear. I love Paul's perspective while in prison. I don't know if you caught that in verse 8, that Paul says that he is a prisoner for the Lord. It's an interesting language. He's in prison. He is a prisoner. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Rome would say, I don't know, Paul, I think you're a prisoner for us. You're, You're our prisoner. Paul says, no, I'm a prisoner of God. Paul's life does not belong to Rome. His life belongs to God. Then Paul explains why his life belongs to God in verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Interesting, he says he abolished death, he's getting ready to die. So he's talking about a spiritual death. You can't kill me. Yeah, you can kill my body, but you can't kill me. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I love this section. These verses, we see God's great work of salvation from beginning to end. God saved us. He's called us to a holy calling. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In his sovereign grace, God rescues sinners from their damning condition, transfers them, us, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, when you think of salvation, it really is God, like God's rescue plan. He infiltrates the camp, rescues us, takes us to his own kingdom. So God saves us, and then God sanctifies us. Sanctification is the process, it's the now and not yet, of God making us more like him. It's now because God will finish it, but it's the not yet because he hasn't completed it. Paul reminds us that God calls us to holiness. God saves us to sanctify us. Finally, God glorifies us. Notice the immortality here that is promised in verse 10. That Paul says that those who have been saved will live forever in a glorified body. So let us marvel at the greatness of God and salvation, what he's doing. From beginning to end, God rescued you. He's making you holy. That you will be made like him, Philippians chapter 3 tells us. And he promises that you will never die. This is the gospel message that we should not be ashamed of. This is also the gospel message that Paul says that He was a preacher or herald of, maybe your translation says, which is why he is suffering. We saw that in verse 11 and 12. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is a good reminder that We are most likely to suffer for the gospel when we proclaim the gospel. 
Paul suffered because he spoke boldly, and he spoke boldly because he believed the gospel was worth it. He looked suffering in the face and said, bring it. Paul found Christ to be more desirable, more enjoyable, more beautiful than anything else. Even dying was gain for Paul because of how he viewed Christ. And he wanted Timothy to have that same view of Jesus. He instructs Timothy in verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I feel like the church in America, we, we have not done a good job with this. We, we, we have not guarded the good deposit that well. In fact, we've probably guarded the good deposit as well as an NBA player guards their opponent. We, we have not done a good job of guarding what God has entrusted to us. I feel like the church has spent way more time, way more energy guarding our conveniences, our preferences, more than we have the gospel. At some point, the American church has become more of a country club for the religious folk. We have tweaked the gospel message to sound more acceptable. We have watered down the gospel and have lowered the bar in order to accommodate our culture. And I'm at the age, it's funny, in this church, I'm kind of an older person. A lot of churches, I'd still, I think, be a young guy, young family. But I'm at the age where I've seen a church generation behind me and now an unchurched generation in front of me to where the saying is completely true. If the gospel is assumed in one generation, it will be neglected or ignored or abandoned in the next. And Paul understands this. I think this is why next week we see in chapter 2 the importance of investing in the next generation. We must make sure that the next generation understands and guards the gospel. Thankfully, it's ultimately not just left up to us to guard the gospel. So this is why the gospel is not lost, ultimately. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us will help us guard the good deposit entrusted to us. So the Holy Spirit has sealed you until the day of redemption. He will never leave you, which is a promise that no one else can make to you. We see this in the final verses that many of Paul's companions have abandoned him. Paul writes in verse 15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. These are some good names. Those of you who are expecting children this year, maybe you could put this in maybe some options. Um, Onesiphorus, you can call him Ani. This is a good name, strong name. For he has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So Paul, Paul was not just sitting in some open prison cell. He had to search him out and found him. Paul says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul, Paul had, 
had faced and is facing a lot. He's suffered tremendously as a prisoner for the Lord. But I wonder out of all the suffering he faced, all the beatings, the lashings, you know, being left without food probably for a while, water, I wonder if out of all the greatest, all the sufferings, the greatest suffering maybe came from being abandoned by his friends. He writes, all, all who are in Asia turned away from me. This is probably hyperbole. I'm sure not everyone turned away, but when people start to turn away, it feels like everyone, doesn't it? All my friends have left me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Don't use those names. Those aren't good names. Those are people who turned away. So you can mark those off your list, okay? We don't know anything about these guys other than this. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Whoever they were, they were obviously disappointment to Paul. A little later in chapter 4, Paul talks about Demas deserting him and others going elsewhere so that Luke alone is with me. He warns of an enemy called Alexander the coppersmith. But in contrast to the deserters, Paul mentions his refresher, brother Ani. Ani was a friend, faithful and loyal. Paul longs for the Lord to grant mercy to his household. He refreshed him because Paul saw that he was not ashamed of his chains. And as we conclude this morning, I think this passage leaves us with a question. Which example are you this morning? Do you look and sound more like Phygelus and Hermogenes who are ashamed of the gospel? You know, when people at work maybe are talking about the things of Christ, you kind of just kind of shriek and hide. Maybe when you hear those people making fun of another Christian in your workplace, you don't speak up because you don't want the same kind of shame because maybe you are some way maybe ashamed of the gospel. I don't want them making fun of me. I'm just going to just sit here, stay focused on work. Are you quick to flee when faithful obedience and boldness are required? Or are you a faithful, loyal servant like Onesiphorus who works hard to refresh others? I think of refreshing others. I think this is, this is a man who practiced the one another's to encourage one another. I think this is what this is talking about. Is that you? Does that kind of define your life? Maybe you feel like Paul, that all your closest friends have deserted you in your time of need. You look around and you're like, man, everyone's gone. When I needed them most, they're not here. I want you to just to see the good news here, even for you. There's good news in this passage that, that you have a friend in Jesus who will never leave you. Others might, he won't. Jesus laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven, so that he could turn us from an enemy into a friend. And he's closer than a brother. And this morning, we get to reflect on this truth. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. You get to come to this table. 
and you're confronted with two elements. The bread represents his body, which was broken for you. He did that for you. Took the lashings, the beatings, spit upon for you. You. And then you see the other element is the cup, which represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. That he knew that it wasn't going to be because of your works. You could never be good enough to earn your salvation. That it had to be a perfect sacrifice in your place. And so he was willing to die and his blood was shed so that you, that you could be forgiven and be in right standing with him. So this morning, as you prepare your hearts to take of the Lord's Supper, just reflect on what he has done for you. That he laid down his life so that you could be a friend. That you could do nothing to make yourself in right standing with a holy and righteous God. That he did everything on your behalf. And so now you come this morning with a thankful heart, with gratitude, humility, knowing that you couldn't do it. It had to be this table that Jesus had to die for you. So you come whenever you're ready. If you're a guest this morning, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member here. There's going to be two stations. So whenever you feel your heart is ready to take at the table, you come this morning and celebrate what God has done for you.